0: Nuclear Ukraine, Week 4. The radioactive remains of the Chernobyl nuclear power plant continue to be a hot spot of concern in the ongoing Russian invasion of Ukraine. While everyone from the Russian military to officials at Rosatom, the Russian state nuclear corporation, to the International Atomic Energy Agency, loudly deny any claims that Chernobyl has killed or harmed more than a handful of people, it takes an award-winning author and historian of environmental and nuclear history who did her own research at 27 Eastern European Medical Archives on Chernobyl's health effects. And she tells
1: you. When they found catastrophic results, which was a major epidemic of children with thyroid cancer, very rare cancer among kids, one in a million normally get it. Suddenly in a small area of northern Ukraine, they had 20 kids. And the Soviet doctors handed the foreign experts 20 biopsies They didn't believe that this could possibly be thyroid cancer among so many kids. They brought them home to have examined. And sure enough, they found that these were cancers. But then in their report, they said, we heard some rumors about thyroid cancer among children. And we found those rumors to be anecdotal in nature. But what they were sitting on was hard evidence. And they had other evidence of 30 more kids in Belarus. And that indeed turned out to be the tip of the iceberg of what became a big epidemic in thyroid cancer among kids. And that is just the start.
0: So when Kate Brown, author of Manual for Survival, A Chernobyl Guide to the Future, not only tells you this, but so very much more, you begin to realize that not only in northern Ukraine and Belarus, but everywhere on this planet, there is a giant, uncomfortable seat that, unfortunately, we all share. we continue coverage of the nuclear aspects of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, taking an historic look at Chernobyl, how bad it was before this war began, and what its health impacts have already been, to give us a sense of how much worse it still could be under current circumstances. We revisit an interview with Kate Brown, author of the best-selling Manual for Survival, A Chernobyl Guide to the Future, to gain her insights into the ongoing aftermath of of that deadly nuclear disaster. We'll also hear from author-activist Harvey Wasserman on how activists across different platforms can assist each other in getting our talking points out to the public, as well as an upcoming event where we learn to do just that. We will also have nuclear news from around the world, numnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, and more honest nuclear information than we will ever get out of a Russian oligarch. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, March 22, 2022. And here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting with this late-breaking story out of Ukraine. Russian military forces have destroyed a new laboratory at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant that, among other things, works to improve management of radioactive waste. This according to the Ukrainian state agency responsible for the Chernobyl exclusion zone. The laboratory contained, quote, highly active samples of radionuclides that are now in the hands of the enemy, which we hope will harm itself and not the civilized world, the agency said. In another worrying development, Ukraine's nuclear regulatory agency said on Monday that radiation monitors around the plant had stopped working. There is additional concern because forest fires broke out around the Chernobyl nuclear site on Monday, March 21st, raising fears, raising fears of radiation contamination and spread in the smoke from the burning of contaminated plants. At least seven fires within the plant's exclusion zone were observed on satellite imagery from the European Space Agency. Lawmakers blamed the blazes on Russian forces that captured the site in February. Ukrainian officials and firefighters could not carry out their usual functions in the area to extinguish the fires because of Russian control of the plant. It warned that fires within a 10-kilometer, or 6.2 radius, of significant radioactive waste and contamination could pose, quote, particular damage. Nuclear experts said the fires could also threaten critical electricity transmission lines, which were recently repaired. According to Edwin Lyman, director of nuclear power safety at the Union of Concerned Scientists, the facilities themselves' greatest vulnerability is a loss of power. And Ergo Adam, Ukraine's state-run nuclear company, said that Russia's seizure of the area meant crews were no longer able to monitor radiation levels there. According to Reuters, Ergoatom also stated, radiation levels in the exclusion zone and beyond, including not only Ukraine but also other countries, could significantly worsen. If there is any good news out of Chernobyl, it's the fact that on Sunday, March 20th, After about 600 hours inside in a hostage situation, 64 people were allowed to leave the Chernobyl nuclear power plant. After more than three weeks without a break, 50 shift workers were among those allowed to go, and they were replaced by 46 employee volunteers from Ukraine. This amounts to about half the staff at the site that actually runs the safety systems at the facility. As yet, It is unclear when or whether the remaining workers will be able to rotate out. The State Nuclear Regulatory Inspectorate of Ukraine has said that some maintenance and repairs at Chernobyl could not be carried out because of, quote, the psychological, moral, and physical fatigue of the personnel. Anonymous, the online hacktivist group, has hacked into the website of Rosatom, defacing the website, but also putting out the assurance that I have not put the operation of any nuclear reactor at risk. We'll have links up to several articles on Ukraine, including what comes after Russia's attack on a Ukrainian nuclear power station by Carnegie Senior Fellow Mark Hibbs, nuclear information service joining Ukrainian calls for sanctions on Russian nuclear industry, Russia's energy clout doesn't just come from oil and gas, it's also a key nuclear supplier, And a key article from the New York Times, as Russia digs in, what's the risk of nuclear war? Quote, it's not zero. And in Japan, on March 16, a pair of earthquakes hit the Fukushima region, a magnitude 7.3, followed by a slightly weaker quake. It hit offshore in the same area as the 2011 earthquake and tsunami. The tsunami alarms did go off, but the two that hit were both under one meter in height and did no further damage. Current reports from the quake are one death, 88 injured, and 2 million homes that lost power. A series of radioactive waste containers stored outdoors at TEPCO's Fukushima site were toppled and tilted by the earthquake. Eight one-meter-square containers toppled over, four of them were damaged, and the contents exposed as... Low dose used protective clothing. The coolant pumps for spent fuel pools were shut down at the number one and number three reactors, with pump operations recovered after two hours. Warping of a panel opening in a door at the number one reactor building that releases pressure in emergencies to prevent hydrogen explosions, and what has been described as a fist sized space in that panel opening, but, quote, No radioactive substances were confirmed to have leaked, according to TEPCO. I just question their use of the term not confirmed there. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment, but first, the baby has arrived. Nuclear Hot Seat's new website is up and running, and I think it's terrific. Faster, way more searchable, and now with transcripts. There's a more robust and flexible player for each episode, a media section, even a humor page. This revamp has required close to a year of planning and more than six months of work because you can't use a cut-and-paste template for a website with 560 recordings and counting. More importantly, we've installed state-of-the-art behind-the-scenes functionality to help the show, its topics, and interviews be found on Google's first page. Search Engine Optimization on Steroids. Now, it's still a work in progress. So far, we've loaded episodes back to January of 2021, along with transcripts, and there are some of our classic Cornerstone shows up as well. The rest will be rolled out over the coming weeks. And yes, we will be proofreading too, especially the transcripts needed. But the site will function as an oral archive of our history told in weekly updates over the past 11 years, and become a roadmap to find the people, issues, and actions that make up the community of those who think nuclear is not exactly a good idea. I don't think I need to tell you how important this is or how expensive it's been. Not only design and implementation, but the monthly charges we now need to maintain the site, which have at least doubled. So if you've ever thought about donating to Nuclear Hot Seat, do it. Now, nuclearhotseat.com and click on the smaller but still red donate button. Any amount can help and you can set up a sustaining donation for as little as five dollars a month. Help us so we can help you to understand nuclear issues on a weekly basis, and know that whatever you do to help, I am deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Now here's this week's featured interview. In looking at the future, we must understand the past. And there is no more important place to do that right now than in Ukraine, and specifically at Chernobyl. While everyone from Rosatom to the International Atomic Energy Agency are downplaying the dangers there, especially to health, some people know more about Chernobyl's truth, and this week we have one of the best of them. Kate Brown is the author of the award-winning Manual for Survival, A Chernobyl Guide to the Future, arguably one of the best books on Chernobyl that has ever been written. She is an historian of environmental and nuclear history at MIT and the author of Plutopia, which won seven major awards. Here, she shares information that is as timely now as it was when we spoke on Monday, April 15, 2019. Kate Brown, I am so thrilled to have you here today on Nuclear Hot Seat.
1: It's great to be here, Libby. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Figuring out the truth about Chernobyl was an enormous, complex, mind boggling project. What drew you to this area of research in the first place, and how did you get started?
1: Originally, I was interested in the nuclear security state, and so I started, uh, I wrote a book called Plutopia about the first two cities in the world to produce plutonium. And while I was working that story, these I wasn't interested in in health or environment, but these farmers who lived downwind and downriver from these two plutonium plants, the Soviet and American one, uh, were telling me about their health problems. And they sounded very similar, strange health problems and similar across this huge divide between the Siberian uh, Soviet site and the Eastern Washington American site. And so I started working to try to figure out what that meant, if they were right, what scientists thought. And I got a little bit into that story in that book, Plutopia, but I felt like I didn't really get the story. So this is almost a sequel. uh, And I thought, well, Chernobyl was a civilian site. It wasn't a military site, so it was more more open. It it exposed far more people, and it was later. It was in the 1980s rather than the, the 40s and 50s and 60s. So I went into the archives and found this sort of Klondike of health records. In many points, I was the first one to check out these records. It was pretty amazing. They went, you know, right after the accident, they went in and they and they took measurements. They measured air and water and soils, but they also measured people's bodies and food. And we don't really have many records like that, even though, you know, in the 20th century history, we've had a lot of nuclear episodes and a lot of nuclear spills and intentional emissions, but we haven't had too many people curious about what happens next when all this radioactivity goes into the environment. So the Soviets did that, and they kept pretty good records, you know, in the five years after the accident. Those records, you know, I, I am in my book, Manual for Survival, are pretty unique.
0: They are, because it seems like that five-year period of time is what gets ignored primarily. It happened after Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It took five years before that longevity study was put into place. And no attempt was made after Three Mile Island as well. And of course, there's been no real long term study after Fukushima, though that's just getting started. from your perspective, why was this data not used to put forth the truth about what was happening as a result of Chernobyl, meaning the health impact of the radiation on people?
1: at first, it was a, it was a censored topic, so the Soviets you know set out these rules they said, you know we don't want anyone talking about levels of radioactivity, health problems. You know, they had a whole list of sort of no-go areas for Soviet employees and people in, in hospitals and who were dealing with cleanup of the accident. And then that story broke into the press around 1989, 1990. And the leaders of Belarus and Ukraine, which had the most, most impacted by the accident, came forward and said, you know, we can't handle this problem anymore. We need help. And they appealed to the UN for help internationally and that got the leaders in moscow really nervous they had been saying all along this isn't really a problem the doses aren't that high everybody can just you know stay the course and increasingly i see in the and the classified records that the, the leaders, um, especially the people in, in the public health field in Ukraine and Belarus, were getting increasingly nervous. And more and more researchers were coming forward saying, you know, we see here a big problem. I mean, by 1990, uh, a KGB general who was a medical doctor who ran a clinic in Kiev, and he had 2,000 patients who had been exposed to Chernobyl. And he, and he writes and he says, you know, nobody's got a study like mine. I have the best equipped hospital. I have Doctors who can actually know how much exposure their patients got, and after our you know four years of study, we have found that perfectly healthy people, when exposed chronically to low doses of radiation, have a whole host of health problems. Any he lists. Um, and he recommended, this is a KGB general, he recommended that the zone of alienation, the, the, the area that should be depopulated, be extended from 30 kilometers to 120, and that would have gone right up to the beautiful, ancient city of Kiev, where he lived. That's how alarmed he was. So why didn't this story come into the public? The Soviet Union fell apart. It was starting to fall apart in 90, it collapsed completely in 1991. And the Soviet leaders, to try to stave off this problem, asked first the World Health Organization to come in and do an independent assessment with foreign experts. World Health sent in three guys. They traveled around for about 10 days. They came out and they said, you know, we don't see any problems. We think you could double or triple the permissible dose and everybody would be fine. No one believed that study. You know, what can three guys do in in 10 days? So then the Soviet leaders asked the International Atomic Energy Agency to come in, and they brought in more scientists, between 100 and 200 scientists. They worked for about 18 months. They looked at levels of radioactivity. They had a medical section that looked at about 1,200 people, very small study, when you consider that 4.5 million were exposed. And they came away and said, you know, we did this study. We see a lot of illness in this area, but nothing from exposure to Chernobyl contaminants, uh, and we don't expect to see any detectable health problems in the future other than a few cases of childhood thyroid cancer. What they weren't saying is that they designed a study for the study to find only catastrophic results. And when they found catastrophic results, which was a major epidemic of children with thyroid cancer, very rare cancer among kids, one in a million uh, normally get it suddenly in a small area of northern ukraine they had 20 kids and the soviet doctors handed the foreign experts 20 biopsies they didn't believe that that they, this could possibly be thyroid cancer among so many kids they brought them home to have examined and sure enough they found that these were cancers but then in their report they said we heard some rumors about thyroid cancer among children and we found those rumors to be anecdotal in nature. But what they were sitting on was you know, hard evidence. And they had other evidence of 30 more kids in Belarus. And that indeed turned out to be the tip of the iceberg of what became a big epidemic in thyroid cancer among kids. Now, what that report did, that report that said no effects, we don't expect to find any effects in the future, right at that time, the UN was trying to raise a billion dollars in today's fund to do two things, carry out a long-term medical study akin to the study of Japanese bomb survivors, but of Chernobyl survivors. And, and this is a very different kind of nuclear event. These are Hiroshima was counted as one big x-ray that lasted less than a second. Chernobyl exposures were long-term chronic exposures of low doses. And those exposures are, are actually far more common. and in, going forward in the future, humans are, are far more likely to have a Chernobyl, set of exposures and a Hiroshima bomb set of exposures. So all kinds of scientists said, we need to do a long-term study. And then the second thing this money was going to be for was to move 200,000 people who were sitting in highly contaminated land. But after that UN report came out that said, we don't see any Chernobyl health effects and we don't expect to in the future, that pledge drive went nowhere. They raised you know less than $6 million.
0: Why do you think the IAEA, and before that, the scientists who came in were
1: all minimizing the impact of Chernobyl? Well, all I could think of is that at the same time in the 1990s, the big nuclear powers, U.S., U.K., France, and Russia, were facing lawsuits from their own exposure, their own testing and production of nuclear weapons during the Cold War. Uh, You know, the French had blown up nuclear weapons in Algeria and in the South Pacific. The British had blown up weapons in the South Pacific and in Australia. The Americans in the Marshall Islands and in, in the American heartland in Nevada. And the Soviets in Kazakhstan and in the Arctic. And so all kinds of people who had whether they're atomic veterans of, in battlefield conditions or whether they were people who had been injected with radioactive isotopes for, you know, experiments or people who had lived downwind of or downriver of nuclear production facilities or they, if they lived anywhere where the fallout landed were starting to sue their governments about their exposures and what they felt were the resulting health problems. So if you could say Chernobyl was the worst nuclear disaster in human history, and only 33 to 54 people died, then you could make these lawsuits go away. And that's indeed what happened in the course of the 1990s and the early 2000s, as these lawsuits got no traction, in, in part because of this Chernobyl narrative. Do you think it was a conscious decision on the
0: part of the World Health Organization, the IAEA, UNSCEAR, and the various governments involved to minimize this for that reason or was it a consequence of them going on another train of thought?
1: You know like a a lot of people are are reporting that my book talks about a big conspiracy theory and I don't use that word and I, I don't think that's what was happening. I think that these scientists who had been working Kind of in a bubble for a long time with the Hiroshima data, felt that they knew exactly, you know, what they call the Hiroshima studies, the gold standard. They felt like they had a real handle on what radiation medicine was and that what the thresholds were for exposure. And when the Chernobyl when people started talking about this public health epidemic in the Chernobyl territories, and and we're not just talking about cancers. What the records show is that people started to feel pretty unwell almost right after the accident. The official tally is that 300 mostly firemen and nuclear plant operators were hospitalized. The count that comes out of the archives is 40,000 people were hospitalized in the summer after the accident, many of whom were children. And they didn't feel well, you know, sort of like respiratory infections uh chronic sore throats, large thyroids, thyroid problems, problems with their endocrine system, immune system disorders. Pregnant women had all kinds of complications at childbirth, increasing frequencies of birth defects and spontaneous miscarriages. And then after about 18 months, cancers kick in, leukemias, and then later thyroid cancers among children, and other kinds of cancers start to climb. And so when this story came out, I think the international community of scientists, it didn't make sense to them. They had a great deal of faith in their established science, and these results that were coming in confounded them. They said, sure, there might be thyroid cancer among kids, but only after maybe 10 years, not after three or four years. And they just couldn't believe the evidence as it was presented to them. And if they were to believe it, they would have had to radically alter many of the regulations for operating nuclear power plants and running nuclear bomb factories. And we would have had to rethink, I think, pretty drastically our whole nuclear enterprise.
0: And, of course, that was something that they wished to avoid. Now... Scientists from Ukraine and Belarus noisily rejected the IAEA's dose estimates and the results of it, and they charged that the IAEA investigators overlooked hot spots of radiation, the resuspension of plutonium particles kicked up by dose, and the ingestion of radioactive particles. They said that people's doses were much higher than the IAEA estimated.
1: What did all of these protestations by scientists from the Ukraine and Belarus lead to? Unfortunately, I didn't go very far. You know, this is at a time, and this is where history really plays an important role, when the Soviet Union was falling apart. And and everything that was Soviet, uh, whether it was politics or economics or science and medicine, was considered bad, retrograde, corrupt. Somehow majorly flawed. And so when these doctors came forward and said this, um, they had been living with this situation for five years. They had been working closely on the ground with patients. You know, what we find in the Chernobyl territories is that one of the charges is, well, when, when you look for disease, you're sure to find it. And there are, there are all these you know extra medical examinations of these people. But in fact, uh, hospitals are running at 50, 60% because the doctors were the first to leave these territories. They saw what was going on and they they wanted to get out of there with their families intact. But the people who did stay were quite committed and they presented their evidence. They had case control studies. They had observational studies. They had all kinds of data that they presented, including biopsies, you know, actual physical material to to hand to the Western researchers, and it was just very, very easy to discredit them. To say, well, you know, these Soviets—they don't have standardized Western protocols. They have very poor equipment. They have really sketchy knowledge, and you know, these guys mostly only spoke, you know, Ukrainian or Russian. They didn't speak English. They weren't very facile um, when they went to international conferences. They had trouble communicating. They had trouble presenting their works. So um, it was really easy to let the triumphalist democracy and capitalism have won rhetoric, win out. And lots of people thought that was a quite sensible dance to take.
0: Much of your research was done looking at reports from small clinics and doctors who were on the ground in the area around Chernobyl and reporting honestly. And they were aided and abetted by what can be called citizen scientists, meaning people on the ground who said, wait a minute, something's wrong here. I've got to do something about it. What were some of the more remarkable steps taken by the people who were living in that zone to try and bring their information to the awareness of scientists in higher places, say from the West, who could possibly make a difference in the narrative.
1: One thing I was on the lookout as I worked my way through 27 archives were everyday heroes, people who, you know, their bosses told them to shut up or not to say anything or to, you know, sort of massage the numbers and there were people who just refused to do that. Uh, and so there was one woman who, she was a, a physicist working at university in Kiev, and her husband was a civil defense guy. And so they had a Geiger counter. And they went around, you know, they heard about the accident, and they went around just in the courtyard of their building in Kiev, and they found these really radioactive spots in different parts of the lawn. And they, they went and they found these little tiny grains of sand that were fiercely radioactive and these were the hot particles that everybody's talking about. And this woman, Natalia Lizitskaya, gathered these hot particles, measured the counts of radioactivity coming from them. And as she ran her calculations and she and then she would come back and measure the, you know, the amount of decay. And then so she'd figure out what isotope it was by how quickly it was decaying. And she gathered, you know, all these different radioactive isotopes and figured out what the whole cocktail was coming from the plant. And very early on, she figured out that this was not, as we were told, a chemical and a steam explosion, but in fact, a nuclear explosion at the plant, that nuclear power plants actually do blow up like nuclear bombs. And she wrote this whole report and sent it to her government to say, you know, by the way, I want you to know that I've run these calculations and this is what I found out. And, you know, mind you, she doesn't have a big institute. She doesn't have a lot of complicated machinery. She doesn't have a whole staff. She's just doing this, you know, in her little tiny two-bedroom apartment in Kiev with a Geiger counter. And in 2016, the institute in Sweden did, in fact affirm what she'd been saying for 20 years, that this was a nuclear explosion. And Lizitskaya tried to get word out to the West that there were real problems and that there was much higher counts of radioactivity than the Soviets were letting on. And so in 1988, there was an international conference in Kiev, and so she disguised herself as a cleaning lady, got a bucket and a mop, and went into the conference and, and got into the closed conference that way by pretending she was you know, just there to clean. And then she went up to a Western researcher, Robert Gale, and tried to give him a a stack of her research that she had gathered. And Gail probably never knew this was happening because four KGB agents swept her up, grabbed her by by each elbow, and let her out the back alley. But there are all kinds of people like that. Another guy, he could not get his leaders in Kiev to understand that even though his region had pretty low counts of radioactivity, the milk was off the charts over permissible levels and Three quarters of the milk was over permissible levels of radioactivity for the time. He went, he knocked on doors, and he talked to people, and he showed them all his records. He finally got 70 liters of milk and sent it to Kiev in a truck and said, you check this milk and tell me what you think. And then once he had done that, actually having the physical, nutritious milk you know, in front of them that was indeed above permissible levels of radioactivity, they finally determined that this area should have special shipments of clean food. So there's people like that throughout the story. It's really pretty wonderful. It doesn't take many people to quietly resist or be committed to doing their job. That guy with the milk, Alexander Komov, he just wrote me the other day. He says, I'm no hero. I was just doing my job. And I think those are wonderful stories, and and these people should be recognized as heroes alongside the firemen and the miners and the nuclear plant operators that risked their lives to contain this accident.
0: You mentioned Dr. Robert Gale, who was an American. What larger role did he play in the Chernobyl disaster and other nuclear disasters that followed?
1: Well, he went there, you know, very altruistically to um, try to help out. And because he had connections with Armin Hammer, the Soviets were saying no, no, no to all the capitalist countries. But Armand Hammer was a very influential person. And he appealed directly to Gorbachev and Gorbachev said, yes, Gail can come in. And Gail had a a new sort of what he thought would help the firemen overcome radiation sickness and he wanted to try it out on them and so he brought that along and the Soviets were both nervous about this new untested drug had been tested on monkeys but not humans and also excited maybe it would work and so Gail and a Soviet doctor Varabyev tried it on themselves first and then they tried it out on the firemen and unfortunately it did not help the firemen but then after that Gail took to the podium and he was the first person speaking from within the Soviet Union about the medical disaster as he witnessed it. And he really became the sort of spokesman or the or the, the face of not just this nuclear disaster, Chernobyl disaster, but he went on to um, a year later in Brazil, there was a smaller nuclear accident in Guyana, Brazil. He, he showed up there. He started to testify. For different lawsuits about nuclear power plants and things like that. So he became a real spokesman, having started out as a cancer doctor, somebody who specialized in leukemia.
0: There's an enormous disparity in reports on the number of people who die as a result of the Chernobyl disaster. The what I call the unholy trio of the IAEA, the World Health Organization, UNSCEAR, have an echo chamber that repeats often that there are only, and the number varies depending on the source, but approximately 54 immediate deaths in the affected area, and maybe between 4,000 and 6,000 cases, depending on the source of thyroid cancers as a result. On the other hand, We have the book Chernobyl, Consequences of the Catastrophe for People and the Environment by Yablokov, Nestorenko, and Nestorenko that concludes that as of 15 years ago when it was published in 2004, there were just under a million premature deaths as a result of the radioactivity released. Why this disparity and which, in your opinion, is closer to the truth?
1: Well, the disparity is because you cannot see, taste, feel, or touch radioactivity Unless you get a big dose, an acute dose, the effects, the medical effects show up much later, whether it's months or years or or decades. So it's very difficult to pin radioactive contaminants to a particular illness, especially when the illness is more subtle and not acute. And, And most of radiation medicine is focused on acute effects that amount to cancer and death. So everybody wants a death count, and the uncertainties in the death count are huge. And the way they come to those numbers are through a series of estimations and extrapolations. So the first thing to be estimated is the dose, how much do we think people got, and they do that by reconstructing the jet streams, you know, the weather, how much rain came down, taking live measurements on the ground, and then estimating, you know, what people were eating, where they were standing, how much time they spent outside. All of this is, you know, relatively, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty in these calculations. And then they extrapolate. This is what the, you know, the unskilled scientists would do is, is extrapolate that dose against what the Hiroshima survivors got. And with that, you know, extrapolation, they'd say, so therefore we expect to see 4,000 cancers in the future or something like that. The problem with extrapolating from Hiroshima is Hiroshima is a very different nuclear event. You know, Hiroshima, Nagasaki, two bombs went off. They count the, the less than a second flash of radioactivity that came from the bombs dropping. They do not calculate in that equation of the Japanese bomb survivors, the fallout from radioactivity. That was called at the time in the 40s residual radiation The Americans, you know, with General Leslie Grove, who's the head of the Manhattan Project, he was really nervous that the Americans had spent millions of dollars building nuclear weapons, and they were worried that nuclear weapons were going to go the way of chemical weapons, that they're going to be determined to be an illegal form of warfare, because it didn't just blow up, you know, and kill somebody right away, but it continued to kill people later on. And maim and harm people. And that was considered, you know, just like chemical weapons, unfair. So they emphasized, you know, these people died, these people who died from the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombs died from burns, just regular thermal burns that anybody could die of in conventional warfare. And they tried to emphasize this this is like a conventional explosion. So they wanted to renounce that there were long standing, you know, that, that there was residual radiation, that radioactivity remained in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And the Japanese were reporting this strange, atomic poison that kills people who were not there in those cities when the bomb went off but still came in later and got sick and some of them died and like how did that happen there must be something lingering but none of that residual radiation or, or what we can now call fallout was considered in the dose the other problem with the Russian uh, studies is that they began five years after the explosions and so they asked people where were you standing you know and, 1945, when the bomb went off and people recalled to the best of their knowledge. And as we know from oral history, that human memories are pretty dodgy, especially in, in traumatic situations. So they did a dose reconstruction. The Japanese scientists at the time actually took measurements. A historian, Susan Lindy, talks about this. They took their own measurements. They recorded pretty high levels of radioactivity. The Americans, when they came in and occupied Japan after the war, confiscated those records. And we don't know where they are to this day. So the Hiroshima records are dose reconstructions, they're estimates, they're guesses about how much of a dose people got. And then the third problem with the Hiroshima studies, or the Japanese lifespan studies as they're formally called, is that the Americans controlled these studies until the 1970s. And as I said, the Americans had a political interest in minimizing the impact of nuclear warfare, of atomic warfare. What influence, if any, did this uncertainty
0: and the minimization of health impact information from Chernobyl, and also what you're saying about Hiroshima and Nagasaki, have on our understanding of the medical impact at Three Mile Island, which happened before Chernobyl, and Fukushima,
1: which happened after Chernobyl? In both the Three Mile Island case and the Fukushima case, as with the Chernobyl cases, you know, because scientists working, you know, from the Japanese lifespan data are saying, you know, these doses are too low. We estimate there's going to be no problems. We really don't have uh, studies. You know, we don't, we don't have serious studies. You know, That we, we haven't put in the time and money and commitment to do a long-term epidemiological study on low doses, chronic low doses of radioactivity. And, you know, that is the scenario that Going forward in the future, we're most likely to experience. We're probably going to have more nuclear accidents, more nuclear spills. We encounter man made radioactivity in the environment almost every day. And so we should know that and we should demand that our scientific establishment and that our governments do those studies finally. And that's the, where, where I end. You know, I, I mean, we see some troubling data coming out of places where people have been exposed to man made radioactivity, but those are just correlations. What we need is to determine causation. And and to do that, we, we finally need to do some real studies.
0: Do you think it's intentional that these studies have not been done?
1: I cannot impugn what other people's motives or intentions are. But I think it's troubling that we haven't done them. I can say that for sure.
0: Do you think that the experts who deny or minimize any health harm from Chernobyl's radiation, not necessarily the bureaucrats or the politicians, but the scientists, actually believe their own denials of radiation's health impact?
1: Oh, I'm sure they Yes. I mean, they believe in their science, and and they really hold to their science. But I think what's amazing about radiation medicine is that really since the end of the Cold War, there have been amazing developments and discoveries in the field of biology and medicine. We've learned about microbiome. We've learned about how sensitive um, neurological systems are. We've learned about inner cell communication and how sensitive they are and epigenetic effects that can be passed down, You know, basically you know, almost acquired traits or patterns of cell communication that can be passed down from parent to offspring. And Very few of those insights have translated into radiation medicine. You know, we sort of need an update of that field. Since the publication of your book, what has been the
0: response in the media? And have you faced any significant pushback from World Health Organization, International Atomic Energy Agency, UNSCEAR, or any of the governments or individuals that you reference in the book?
1: No, I have not had pushback from those agencies. I've had some critical reviews, and and that's fair enough. And sometimes um, there's been reviewers who are you know industry scientists or, or or somehow make their money from you know sort of promoting nuclear energy. And and I don't think that's entirely fair of publications to ask you know sort of pro nuclear s- spokespeople and scientists to review my book because I don't think you can do. Uh, give an impartial review for that. But uh, most of the reviews have been very good when they're an impartial reviewer. Do you think that the radiological impact of Chernobyl on the health of
0: people in Ukraine, Belarus, and really around the world will ever be determined beyond the shadow of scientific doubt?
1: Oh, I hope so. I hope one day we, we will have certain knowledge. Just like for a long time we didn't know, you know, it was debated and fiercely fought over arsenic, lead, tobacco. DDT, x ray fetuses in vivo, like all these things were debated, fiercely debated, resi- you know, that when scientists first discovered these problems, fiercely resisted, usually by say, people who stood to make money from selling products that were damaging to human health. Now we know for sure that cigarettes cause cancer. We know for sure that lead causes all kinds of developmental problems among children, especially. We know that arsenic is poison. And so I think one day we'll we'll have more certain understanding of what low doses of radioactivity does to human health. If you were to sum up the message
0: of your book and all the research that went into it and present that message to the world what would you want to say?
1: I guess I'd want to say that Chernobyl's most often described as an accident and I think that's that's wrong, that an accident implies that there's a beginning, a middle, and an end. And people definitely want closure when there's been a bad accident or any kind of trauma. But I think that's doing this event a disservice. What I found as I researched is that that area in northern Ukraine was contaminated with radioactive fallout from nuclear testing before they even built the Chernobyl plant. The people who lived near that swamp, farmers, had 10 to 30 times more radioactive cesium in their bodies and people who lived in Minsk and Kiev. And I find that after the accident, the, the big Chernobyl accident in 1986, there are other smaller nuclear accidents, another pretty big one, a pretty big explosion in 1991 at that same Chernobyl plant. Um, I was visiting, following biologists who work in the zone, In 2017, and and my Geiger counter was screeching, and I asked them, "What's going on?" They said, "Oh, we had a fire here about eight months ago, and and that burned the leaf litter and limbs and and trees, and volatilized the radioactivity that was stored there. That was another nuclear event. It was probably something that would have been rated a you know level five on the IEA ratings chart, but nobody paid attention to it. And so, you know, I think what we need to do is think of Chernobyl as an acceleration on a timeline." of radioactive emissions that have occurred since 1945 and that have sort of peppered and saturated, especially the northern hemisphere of our globe. And if we look at other statistics, uh, those that record rates of cancer, rates of birth defects, male sperm counts, which have dropped in half in the northern hemisphere since 1945, cancer rates that have steadily climbed, especially thyroid cancer, has not stopped climbing. Childhood cancers used to be a medical rarity. They no longer are. I think, that, again, that's a, that's a correlation, but I think we should get a lot more curious and ask our leaders and ask the scientific establishment to figure out what's going on. Why is there, why is there a cancer epidemic? Uh, why are male sperm counts dropped in half since 45? And that's, I think, what I'd like readers to leave with at the end of my book.
0: One final thought. What, if any, steps are in place to allow you to address the United Nations with this information, and what might we do to help speed that
1: along? Well, I think we should ask for another pledge drive, and we should ask for you know countries that are, especially countries that are nuclear powers and have nuclear reactors. And certainly, as lots of countries gear up for a, a new nuclear renaissance, we should ask to have that study done and paid for by you know every country that's building nuclear power plants to contribute for that study so that we can finally know if this is a safe enterprise that we're pointing towards in the future Kate Brown
0: your book is a fabulous read it's like a detective story or a murder mystery on a global level it is i think Necessary reading for anyone who really wants to understand what the issue of nuclear is all about. And I want to thank you for taking the time to be my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thanks a lot, Libby, for having me here. That was Kate Brown, author of the award-winning Manual for Survival, A Chernobyl Guide to the Future. Kate also co-wrote an article with Susan Solomon for The Washington Post entitled one Thing Nuclear Power Plants Weren't Built to Survive, War. It's about the nuclear aspects of what's happening in Chernobyl now, and we will have links up to her book and that article on our brand new website, NuclearHotSeat.com, under this episode, number 561.
2: Activists, shout-outs, shout-outs, shout, out, shout, out, shout, out, shout
0: out. Dr. Helen Caldicott, The Australian pediatrician, author, and anti-nuclear advocate, aka the mother of us all, has a new video out, her first in a while, The Dangers of Nuclear Technology, and she should know. We'll have a link to it up on our website. And the esteemed Harvey Wasserman is a veteran author, activist, and spark plug, skilled at getting people involved and moving on issues that matter. Harvey is holding an event this Sunday, March 27, in Santa Monica that has implications for all our work. I spoke with him about it on Monday, March 20th, 2022. Harvey Wasserman, I know that you have been following and reporting on the nuclear situation in Ukraine in the wake of the Russian invasion. You've been doing this as intensely as I have. And activists have been concerned about the possible consequences at Chernobyl and Zaporizhia while there have been a certain number of op-eds and articles that have come from people with our perspective in the news, there hasn't been what I would call a consolidated or an organized nuclear activist response. Something that looks, sounds, and acts like an actual movement as opposed to separate people saying separate things at separate times. And I'm wondering From you because you are not only a veteran activist and a veteran organizer, you're the man who coined the term no nukes. So what are we missing here and what do we need to do?
2: The situation in Ukraine is apocalyptic. We have 15 reactors that are completely vulnerable to whatever this madman uh, Putin wants to do. And if he chose to blow them all up, he could, along with the four waste dumps at, at Chernobyl. So we're really looking at the possible end of the human race here. We finally are getting response from the mainstream media, including the New York Times, which has run a front page article on the shift change at Chernobyl. The people working at Chernobyl have had to work 24-7 for weeks now. The situation got to be really dire. And the, the good news is that the New York Times has been paying attention. So your question is quite accurate. Why hasn't there been more of a generic anti-nuclear response? On the other hand, I believe that the the message that this is the clearest, uh, obvious example of why we can't have nuclear power has gotten around to a certain extent. The only good thing that's come of the invasion of uh, Ukraine, Phoebe, is that very soon after it happened, Finland, which was in contract with Russia to build a new nuclear plant, canceled that project. So at least that's one good thing that's happened from the Ukraine situation. I'm hoping this will be the death of nuclear power. Not enough has been said about it. You and I have been out there beating the drums about it. Hopefully the message will sink in.
0: In terms of pushing for a death to nuclear The nuclear industry is actually finding ways to spin this invasion to say, you see, the nuclear reactors are still operating and nothing horrible has happened, and let's build a whole bunch of new nukes. And they have been hitting the ground running, certainly in France, in the UK, they're pushing hard in Canada. So they are trying to take control of the conversation and say, this is a proof that nukes are good. We need to come up with the accurate response to this which is are you out of your freaking minds but make it in but make it in a way that's going to be understandable to the general public so how do we do that how do we organize how do we determine what our talking points are and echo them back and forth with each other
2: well you know your show is a key part of it uh, i've been beating the drum at my weekly meetings on emergency election protection There should be demonstrations. There should be greater actions. But, you know, I don't think the world is stupid. And this is so clearly an apocalyptic situation. The nuclear industry can say all it wants. But uh, when you have a coverage on the front page of the New York Times of a shift change at a nuke dump, I think the word does get out. The nuclear industry is not going to get away with selling its bogus product. You got to remember, Levy, that nuclear power In no way, shape, or form can any any more uh, compete with renewable energy. Much as they want to beat their drum for new reactors, it's not going to happen. There's no more new big reactors going to be built in the United States. The big threat is from these so-called small modular reactors being pushed by Bill Gates. And that's a long way from happening. I don't believe that we can't stop those there's just nothing really to recommend them. They can't compete. They can't get built in time. And renewables are really undercutting the entire, not only nuclear industry, but fossil industry as well. Much as a failure of nuclear power has been, renewable energy has been an incredible success, both financially and in terms of the environment and in terms of job creation. So we have these to push. This is uh, the reality in a vocal. The last nuclear reactors under construction in the United States still haven't come online years after they were supposed to. uh, They're over $30 billion now. The VC summer reactors were canceled after costing $10 billion, and one of their executives is in prison. So we're not pushing as effectively or as strongly as we should. But on the other hand, the nuclear industry really is on the ropes. This is not going to help them in any way, shape, or form. And you and I and others like us really need to keep pushing the message that these reactors are way too dangerous. It also, you know, you don't cool the planet. You don't fight global warming with 440 radioactive fires burning at 570 degrees Fahrenheit. You know, <laughs> that doesn't fly in the real world. So we just have to keep doing what we do, and hopefully the message will sink in.
0: In terms of doing what we do, I think you have more faith in the persistence of vision of the public as to the problems of nuclear as they're coming up now than I do. I think it's going to take a steady drumbeat, not just you and me, but a whole bunch of other people, which is why I think we need to move beyond a passive or just a Facebook commenting to each other into something more organized. And with that in mind, There's going to be an event that I think you organized for this Sunday, March 27, here in Los Angeles, which is bringing together activists from a range of issues together in a roundtable discussion. What is the purpose of this gathering?
2: We have uh, amazing people. It's going to be in Santa Monica. People who want to come, contact me directly, solartopia at Gmail. It starts at one o'clock on Sunday, March 27th, in, in Santa Monica. We're bringing together activists on a wide range of issues from all over the country. We have serious heavy hitters coming from Washington, from Virginia, from North Carolina, as well as, of course, from the West Coast. We have a tremendous array of speakers. Danny Sheehan, the great actress Mimi Kennedy will be there. This is a gathering not for people to hear speeches, but to meet each other, to coordinate their work, to get out of their silos. We're talking about election protection homelessness, the attempt by the nuclear power industry to kill solar energy, the widest possible range of activism. We're going to have a roundtable where everybody can speak. And Libby, as you know, every Monday at 2 p.m. Pacific time, we do a grassroots emergency election protection coalition roundtable. So far, we've had 60 to 100 people. Actually, next month, two years that we've been doing it, Again, everybody participates and we've had tremendous networking and organizing results has been very successful. So when you email me at soartopia at Gmail, you can ask me about that as well.
0: I'm honored to be asked to be a participant in the roundtable, and I'm looking forward to putting this forward. With the event, what do you see coming out of it that we can utilize moving
2: forward? We need more coordination among people doing progressive activism, because everybody's working on their own issue, which is great. But now we need to coordinate and get our full power going into the midterm elections and fighting things like Chernobyl and the nuclear catastrophe in Ukraine. This is a, a very, very dangerous time in our country, and we have to be united on the progressive side in order to defeat this and to make sure that we actually have a democracy going forward. So we have to unite all our different movements and preserve what's left of our democracy. or We're not going to make
0: it. Nuclear is, of course, a key piece of all of that.
2: Yes, it is. Because if we could democratize our energy system and switch not only from nuclear, but from coal, oil, and gas, what I call King Kong, coal, oil, nukes, and gas, and move over to renewables, we will have a much more democratic and sustainable society.
0: Author and activist Harvey Wasserman. If you are in the Los Angeles area and wish to attend this event, it's in Santa Monica on Sunday, March 27, starting at 1 p.m. To learn more, you can contact Harvey directly at his email, solartopia at We'll have a link up on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 561. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, March twenty second, 2022. You can sign up to get Nuclear Hot Seat at all of your favorite podcast platforms, or you can go directly to the website and sign up so you get an email every week with the link and a brief description of some of the content. That's at the brand new NuclearHotSeat.com website. And we're still using the same old yellow box. So look for that. Put in your first name, your email address. We won't sell it. We won't share it. We just want you to get the information as soon as it posts. As always, if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. And if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, take a moment to go to our brand new upgraded website, NuclearHotSeat.com, and look for that now modest-sized red button. Anything you do to help will help, especially now, and we will really appreciate your support. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2022, Libby Halevi and Hartestry Communications. You are free to quote or cite me or my guests as long as you credit Nuclear Hot Seat and my guests' organizations. This is Libby Halevi, producer and host of Nuclear Hot Seat, reminding you that old nuclear disasters never die. They just morph into some fresh hell. So there you go. You've just had your weekly nuclear wake-up call. So don't go back to sleep because we are all in the Nuclear Hot Seat